0: Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we conclude our conversation with Nick from the IWW about the current state of the organization and its future.
1: Um, okay. So yeah, let's talk, I mean, let's, let's talk about, I guess, like the modern form of the IWW and what have been some of like the more high profile campaigns and how have the, how, what has been the kind of general approach to those campaigns? Like how has that been structured?
2: Yeah. So uh, just to kind of maybe help it along, I mentioned the national labor relations act before. If uh, you want to, if you work somewhere and you don't have a union, you want to get a union, you have to get, you have to go to the National Labor Relations Board and you have to file this piece of paper or these pieces of paper that say, we want to have a union election here. And they will say, all right, what is your bargaining unit? And you have to say, our bargaining unit is going to be this. And they'll kind of like determine what the bargaining unit is. And that is basically what is the group of employees, the group of workers for which we're going to, you know, count, right, as being accepted into this union and as working at this employer. Once they set that bargaining unit, um, they can hold an election when they determine what that bargaining unit would be. So you would, you go and you file for your election, you get your bargaining unit determined, and then the NLRB is gonna hold this election where workers go and they vote yes or yes, I certify this union to represent me in negotiations with management um, or no, right? So, that's been kind of the regime for labor unions in the United States since the nineteen the late 1930s. Um, it was always, there was always kind of a skepticism towards that from the IWW, um, and certainly many on the left, because here's the state, right? Like taking control of this process of like, and getting its hands in the process of negotiations between the workers and management and who gets to be the representative of the workers and, and things like that. So in the 2000s, um, the most the, like high profile campaign that stands out is Starbucks workers. Um, I think one of the people involved in borders is also the same person who got involved in organizing at Starbucks. Um, who went on to become a labor lawyer, Daniel Gross. and You can read interviews with him when he was a, a worker at Starbucks and they went public with their campaign. Um, on like Libcom, you can find them and stuff. So at Starbucks, they had kind of a problem, which was that when they went to get their bargaining unit determined, the NLRB said the bargaining unit is going to be all of Manhattan. So they were organizing Starbucks's, Starbucks workers in New York. And they were overwhelmed. The IWW was not a very big organization, did not have a lot of resources, and their strategy for trying to organize there was to use volunteer labor completely. So when they were like, you have to organize, in order to win the vote, you're going to have to organize a majority of workers at Starbucks in all of Manhattan. It became kind of like a daunting task. So I, this might be you know making it more narrative than it actually was in practice, but they essentially relied on my, what, has come to be called minority unionism and solidarity unionism. And the idea was that, well, we'll focus on one shop or several locations of Starbucks, um, and we'll get as many workers as we can onto an organizing committee working together to think about the demands that they want and to plan how they're going to uh, use pre- like public pressure and direct action to get the employer to comply with those demands. Um, And this basic structure has been, or this basic strategy has been the IWW strategy uh, since then. Um, And it's actually kind of become institutionalized in the organization in the form of an organizer training, which, to be completely frank, is something that every other union has, right? They all have trainings about how to get your bargaining unit mobilized and motivated and organized and get them involved in the union process. They have it for a little bit of a different reason though but the idea is you know you recruit your co-workers to this committee and you start like i said talking about problems at work and how you can address them
1: but could you could you just talk really quick about like what the different reasons are um between like like why does the nww do it and why do other unions have like these same kind of trainings like what's the difference
2: yeah so yeah that's a good, a good great point if you go to an election and you win it it doesn't mean the employer has to negotiate a contract with you. This is another funny thing about U.S. labor law. So you, even business unions have to rely on the threat of a strike to at minimum get concessions, to at minimum get a contract. The prevailing ideology of what are called the business unions, the conservative unions, like the, honestly, the more successful unions to a certain degree, uh, their strategy is to get to that point, uh, bargain a good contract, what they call a good contract, which is going to include a provision that says that the workers will not strike for the duration of this contract. Um, is going to include perhaps like benefits, right, healthcare, dental vision, uh, wage increases, job descriptions, you know, safety, things like that, work rules. <laughs> Um, will include a grievance procedure, which is often very bureaucratic. And this is sometimes where the no strike clause gets smuggled in. A grievance procedure is basically that if if a worker has any problem at work, they will file a grievance after the shift ends or whatever on their free time with the union and the union and the boss will work it out, basically. Um, What happens is that you, the union will negotiate this contract, the boss will say yes, the union will say yes. Um, you'll have a grievance procedure, you have a no strike clause. you have also a management's right, rights clause, which says that management has the right to do like XYZ things, to hire and fire anybody if they, you know, are so fit. And the union will maybe hem in on this to a certain degree about when they can get hired or fired without, you know, uh, recourse to the, the grievance procedure. But so they often have these three things. And the structural effect is that the union has kind of a financial interest in getting all of these workers geared up and excited about this contract, getting the palliatives out of the contract, right? Wage increases and things like that, collecting the workers' dues on the regular, which they do, and then kind of just leaving town. And that's been kind of the dominant strategy of most of the business unions. And then the bargaining unit at that workplace is not active. There's no reason to be active because anytime they have a grievance, they can't do any direct actions. They can't go on strike. They can't interrupt work. Anything that's construed as a strike is going to cost the union a ton of money. It's technically illegal. It can cause all sorts of problems. So there's an incentive for the union to keep workers from striking. Um, so you not only will you get fired, and the union won't defend you. You'll get kicked out of the union potentially. So right. So. That's a that's a bad thing. That's a that uh, completely destroys militancy. Uh, completely destroys any sort of socialist education project within unions. Um, it becomes a real hindrance to doing, you know, socialist union organizing.
3: Well, I would almost say it's kind of like corporatist unionism, right? Where the, the boss and the you know the union kind of just work through bourgeois law to find you know a position for the worker that's best up in the capitalist economy. So right, how it's, did, it's, oh, it's very much about kind of like making uh it's, it's, it's about class cooperation rather than class struggle, essentially. Yeah. A lot of the, of the, I guess the yellow business unions, you know,
1: how does that relate to the trainings then? So like the, the, the say business unions, they tend to operate like on this particular, like highly contract centric, often with like a no strike provision model. Like how do they, how do if, if, you know, like the, if the membership is so apathetic as a result of this, like what does what role does the organizer training then play in their approach?
2: Right. so the contract will be negotiated for a period of years and from the perspective again, uh, at least of the employer but probably of these more conservative unions as well, um, the longer the better. And it's a double-edged sword for the union because if they go for too long, when the contract negotiations come up again, then they need to plow resources back into getting organizers out there, to sort of energizing that bargaining unit again, and to getting them up and ready to fight for more concessions, if that's what they want. And the interesting thing is that if you have a closed shop, you have to be in the union to work there, right? So. That makes it really easy for unions to kind of negotiate bad settlements and then, or bad contracts, and then kind of just take a kind of hands off approach. If you have a right to work state like Florida, you don't have to be in the union to work in a workplace. So you have a situation where the union has to get more active if they're going to get the dues out of the workers there. I just, that's just a fact, you know, whatever you think about right to work or, or whatever, that's one of the the sort of structural results. Um, and there are other factors to it. So I think the effect that they're going to use the training force to re-energize this base to kind of get it, to get this new contract. That's, that's what I think it's deployed or, or used for. Um, mostly the IWW doesn't go after contracts. They don't go after elections right now. Um, and so the question is, what do they use? the your training for
1: yes that was my next question
2: right so it's a similar so they're gonna organize this committee and wh- what happens is uh, just a war of attrition there's not a union at Starbucks anymore there hasn't been for years for several years there was a website and there was a committee of IWW's a few of them who worked at Starbucks who would do like conference calls every now and then and talk about how they could revitalize it but there was no real strategy to do so. There really couldn't be, and it's kind of a similar thing across the board. There's a real—it's um, a—it's a really strange phenomenon because you have this sense of we need to do everything we can to organize this committee to get our co how are we going to get our our fellow workers onto this committee and talk about you know problems and educate them about how shitty capitalism is and and win demands from the boss but you're you're just not going to do it because you can do some really heroic like burn yourself out kill yourself organizing slash activism to get several committees and several starbucks's across your city built up and they're just going to fire the shit out of you and it's illegal. But if you go to the NLRB and this is what the IWW has done, it takes seven or eight years for the NLR because the boss can just keep appealing at like so many levels. It's going to take you five, six, seven, eight years to get back wages, which will be subtracted, which will have subtracted from them. Any wages you earn in the meantime to get any sort of, you know, uh, uh, punishment for the employer who did fire you. It's just, it's not a realistic or viable strategy.
1: So to... the, the business unions basically use it as a way to sort of rev up the base of the people that they already have in these organized shops. Yeah. And so the IWW is basically going around and giving this to people who have not organized shops with the idea that they will use the knowledge developed at these organizer trainings to then organize their workplace in the manner that you've just described.
2: Right. And so technically speaking, the IWW doesn't have any official, it's not, you can go for elections, and, and some IWWs have gone for elections, but if you go to an organizer training put on by the IWW, and if you read the materials, it discourages the election process. It gives a very brief outline of it. There's no discussion of a strategy for successful, like waging a successful campaign to get elected as the, you know, uh, representative for the bargaining unit. Um And there's a general sense, I mean, I think there's a metaphor that's even built in. If it's not built in, it's commonly used, which is that uh, direct action is the sword and labor law is the paper shield, right? And again, it's kind of this thing where, yeah, you know, partly it's true, but it's something we can't just disregard. You know what I mean? Like it's something that you have to take account for and have a strategy that uh, works with that fact. That's a fact. Yeah, it just
3: kind of sounds like this fetishization of direct actionism and illegalism, well, a like more pure form of struggle. Well, yeah. and I know
1: that I've, <laughs> I've gone to one of these organizer trainings and, um, you know, they basically – a major issue that you brought up is people getting fired. And the IWW, I mean, one thing they'll bring up is, is the sort of paper shield of, you know, it's illegal, so we can take that to court or whatever. But it takes forever for anything to come of it. But they didn't really have an answer for the problem of what happens if you get fired. Right. Um, because I, I remember,
4: if I can interject, I mean, I've i have been on, uh, I've helped put together an IWW organizer training before, not as not as a uh, a trainer, but just helping get one together back when I was in Maryland and I mean, my experience of it was that there, there, there was some advice at least about how you could talk to your coworkers about the threat of firing. And, and um, I mean, sometimes it seems like the best people can do is uh, harass the manager with as many phone calls as possible. So, so sometimes the answer is a non-answer, but they, they, I suppose, We were kind of told that the at our training at least that the you know telling people that the law will protect us from being fired would be kind of a um a misguided or misleading thing to tell people
2: oh yeah it would be a lie and i i think that that's so that's what i mean when i say it's correct to call it a paper shield it is a paper shield but that doesn't change the fact that we need a we do still need a strategy that solves that question, right? We well, don't
1: the point that I was getting to is that they basically didn't have an answer for it. And they just said one thing they said was that nobody who they they never talked to anybody who'd gotten fired as a result of their organizing who regretted it. Um but I, I kind of have to wonder to what extent that's actually true.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, who's which one of the ones that regretted it is gonna, you know, tell them that or reach out to them or whatever. You know what I mean? Like right. so um, honestly. Did you have something to add, Grant? Sorry,
4: not something, uh, not much. I mean, the the you can decide how much this really answers uh, that or not, um, because I'm I'm sort of just relaying it. But uh, I think one thing I was told when I was at that training was basically that yeah, that is the reality, and and either you have you have unity between the different people of the workplace in in a they can't fire us all sense or it's going to fall apart.
2: Right. So um, I guess the direction I'm taking this is that there needs to be a strategy for some degree of security and like it or not, that's what contracts can offer. Is a- yeah,
4: no, I'm not, I'm not here to, to sort of right, right. rage against or for contracts. I, I was just bringing up what I heard at the training, but go on.
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, so yeah. And that's, I'm just kind of, you know, transitioning it to that point, but, um, or or it doesn't have to be contracts, but some vision, right? Some concrete set of achievable set of like points or goals or whatever that where we can like articulate to the people we're trying to organize. Like, if we get here, these are the wins that we're going to get, and we're going to secure, and how we're going to do it. And I
4: don't. It definitely think- did seem like the gains. Whenever they would talk to us at the training about gains that the IWW had made, that they were that they were te- tepid, temporary gains at, at, at many workplaces um, because of uh, a reluctance to pursue these kinds of things, perhaps. Well, and they yeah. often
1: point to, like, for instance, with the Starbucks thing, how wages, like, in New York did go up and there were these, like, changes and reforms to the Starbucks. Um, but, of course, the union didn't really get any credit for it because they didn't have any formal control over the workplaces.
2: <laughs> right, and they weren't, yeah, they weren't certified as the, you know, the representative of a bargaining unit there. The thing, so the Starbucks gain, and this is the other thing, like they've had some really good wins. Starbucks workers across the country used to not get paid time and a half for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and the IWW fought and fought for that, and mostly, I, as I understand it, from public pressure, but also from direct actions in New York, won it, and now they do. I worked at Starbucks in Tampa, Florida. Nobody knew why or how we got time and a half on MLK Day. Nobody ever talked about it. They just it was a cool thing, but. Um, that's the double-edged sword. It's a it is a win. It's a big win, but if the union isn't like, but if, if
4: you're not building more permanent institutions of resistance, what does exactly. that do for you? Exactly.
2: Right. Right. And that's that's the challenge. Is that I think that the the method of organizing, right? These sort of isolated, um, embattled committees. A, a big result is kind of a classic activist sort of outlook or culture where there's like lofty aims um concrete problems enough to the point where you can start to think that you know you're getting some solutions there's no connection between the two there's no idea of like strategic growth and as a result oh and it's based on volunteer labor and as a result there's success inflation where And I really have to stress, I don't mean this as a judgment on people in the IWW because this is – I really genuinely think this is a result of, like, being engaged in these circumstances. But you're protecting your own ego, right? You're kind of inflating what you're doing, what you say you're going to do, and uh, what you've won, quote-unquote, because how else could you justify spending this much time? You know what I mean? And sinking this much. yeah. And- I was going to say,
3: it's, it's kind of like um this thing where um it's like they, they stuck into the boss anyway in the end. And so even yeah. though they got fired, it was still worth it because they, they did direct action. And they put so much time into it and so much dedication into it. And so, so therefore, is- it's good no matter what.
1: This is and by no means... This is by no means a thing that's limited to the IWW. Like on the, on not the it. left it's generally, the there's this problem of moving the goalposts around, essentially, or even refusing to set like specific concrete targets of achievement. So that <laughs> anything that you do that falls short of what you wanted was a win because something happened, even if it was you know six miles short of what you were aiming for. You know, um, but, yeah,
5: yeah you, you, M- most you of the stuff. Most of the stuff is not consequence-based on the left. We've been losing for so long that most people that are participating are doing so out of a sense of duty or are doing so because they admire certain people. They're not doing it mostly because of consequences.
2: Right. And when I say ego, I just use that to mean your own sort of, like, yeah, like you said, your sense of duty, your sense of self-worth. It's not like, I'm not saying these people have inflated egos or anything. It's just that like you have to kind of justify to yourself to what you're doing and I think that it makes there's a degree of logic that that's how it would kind of unfold.
3: Well, and it I kind of makes that, you more like impervious to criticism because right a lot of people have the attitude. Well, the, the current like OT one hundred and one strategy works just fine. It's just that people aren't applying it hard enough, and they yeah. aren't you know doing it hard enough, and you know they're not doing it according to the book enough. And so if we were only just more peered into the book and more. You know, and we tried harder than we would be succeeding. And so it becomes like, you know, and so the blame goes on all the volunteer members for not volunteering enough of their hard labor when there really is kind of the strategy is basically people spontaneously are going to form campaigns and then those campaigns are going to become unions and there's no unitary strategy that is actually, you know, trying to integrate all these campaigns into a a wider strategy that can actually win material gains.
2: Uh, Yeah. Then that's, that's so the structure of the organization (sighs) plays a role in that as well. And that's another factor.
1: Well, it seems like, and I I know like with Starbucks and some of these other, probably even KFC back in the seventies, like the idea is we can take sort of, franchises and kind of turn them against him by if we can if we can prove to people that we can organize one Starbucks here, then they'll want to organize a Starbucks where they're at. And then you got a bunch of Starbucks organized.
2: Something so about a, a prairie fire, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like a, it's very
3: much a reliance on spontaneity. And there's kind of like this warship of like the spontaneous actions of workers without being kind of mediated by um, you know, a vanguard or political party or whatever it would have you.
2: A bureaucracy.
3: Well, this
5: yeah. had a reference at some point. There was a time when there was more autonomous struggle. I mean, I think that's what makes reading some of the old Marxist texts and even some of the old anarchist texts and, and syndicalist texts kind of hard is that, well, you know, not to underestimate that there were political parties putting together some of the struggles, but there was more of, and, quote,, you know, an organic kind of um, coherence and struggle. Like, it wasn't something that had to be totally imported in from intellectuals. It was there.
2: It's, and it's interesting because you read about, so, McKee's Rock Strike, I think, was steelworkers in Pennsylvania. McKee's Rock, Pennsylvania. This is IWW. That, on the one hand, if you read it a certain way, it's spontaneous. But these were steel, many of them were steelworkers that had been in unions and socialist parties in Europe. And they had moved to the United States. And they became fed up with the working conditions where they were. And so it was spontaneous in one sense. They didn't really have, I think, a super formal organization. And who they reached out to and who they were connected to was the IWW because the IWW had made a habit of reaching out to immigrants. So there was sort of this connection there.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. And- See, I think it's, if, I think the autonomous kind of sent, like there was a CLR, CLR James was described as kind of the autonomous, spontaneous working class struggle as kind of a product of the post-1945 settlement where you did have kind of social democratic institutions that were, you know, part of managing the working class that you could be autonomous from. Whereas like today in the neoliberal kind of era where all of these kind of institutions are under attack, there really isn't as much an official bureaucratic labor movement that you can like, you know, be aut- autonomous and wildcat strike against
5: and there's also uh, very changed relations of production underneath it that And I think in
3: you know the, the, the era before of the classical move of, of the classical socialist movement like before World War 1 and World War 2 basically I think you did see the, the a lot of socialist parties and unions you know building the institutions that did kind of make these kind of mass strikes possible because they created a sense of class collectivity where workers saw themselves as part of a class and therefore would be inclined to strike in the first place and in solidarity of well, other workers
1: yeah well okay so uh i guess my next question is um what is the industrial unionist caucus <clears throat> still there hello
2: anton nick, nick. hello Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was on a mute. I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, so the IUC, the Industrial Unions Caucus, is a group of uh, wobblies, uh, members of the IWW, who would like to kind of put the union back in the direction of forming industrial unions. Um, there had been some, like, attempts at forming industrial organizing committees, in the early 2000s, in, like, Portland, in Chicago. Um, and they had some successes. I don't think any of them w- went on to negotiate contracts or anything like that. But, um, yeah, we're kind of trying to bring people together in the IWW around a set of aims and principles that will fix the administration of the union um, and that will sort of chart, like, a collective setting. The, we want to get the union to the place where it's setting Uh, a collective organizing policy. So right now the structure of the union is that you have these general membership branches, which are basically based by region, by city. Um, And anybody who signs up to the IWW joins their local general membership branch. um, And then they're just kind of free to do whatever organizing campaign, so to speak, that they want. So something we're trying to push for is to say, well, no, let's try to get workers together who work in the same industry, get them to start talking, get them to elect like a steering committee that can draft an organizing proposal that talks about strategies for growth, that uh, researches the industry and gives details that talks about, this is the city we're going to target first for these, like that starts to try to centralize the resources of the organization in order to use them and target them efficiently to make progress, to find strategies that work, which might include using contracts and a principled basis to secure gains, to build membership and things like that. Yeah, um, So that's the IUC.
1: So the idea is basically to, instead of basically going for the shotgun approach where people just kind of take this like AEIOU model that's put forward in the OT 101s and just apply it to wherever they happen to be at and hope that this process gradually develops into, you know, a broader maybe series of campaigns or whatever, the Mm -hmm. idea seems to be to turn the union into a particular resource or or a particular thing that will combine the resources of the membership and try to leverage those resources to make gains in a strategized and thought-out way, essentially.
2: Right, exactly, exactly. Um, And so... Yeah. So there's, I, I think there's like maybe three components to that as, um, we kind of outlined is, you know, one is fixing the administration, which has some problems that will sort of make it easier for people to join and stay members. Um, for instance, so like dues collection. So in the IWW, if you want to pay dues, like you're a member, you pay your dues, uh, it's de facto cash based. You have a paper card, and the person who collects your dues gives you a stamp, a little sticker. I mean, this is straight out of 1905. Um, most unions have what's called a dues checkoff, where the employer takes the dues from the worker's paycheck and gives it to the union in one like lump sum, I think, you know per paycheck. Some people are principally opposed to this because the employer has their hands on the money that comes from the worker and goes to the the union. And hey, that's reasonable. I can see an argument for that. But what we could do is we could just set up a process that's like a PayPal subscription. You know, there are financial services we could just pay a small annual fee for and our dues collection, you would just sign up to the union and it would be automatically withdrawn from your bank account like you would subscribe to Jacobin Magazine or Netflix, you know. Um, This would minimize the admin volunteer labor on the branch end because you didn't want have anyone collecting dues and wasting their time with that. They won't have to file these paper reports that say how much dues are collected. And it should be stated the reason we have to file these reports and have to be so precise in them is that the government has a set of laws to scrutinize labor unions against racketeering and things like that. Um, which both, you know, does maybe occasionally actually target mobbed up unions, but it's also just a way to have another set of means to police, you know, radical unions. But if we, so if we centralize this and automated it as much as possible, then you can reduce, right. You, you automated it. You reduce the amount of necessary labor time to accomplish those tasks. You know, it's just basic, it's kind of common sense. Um, well, not on the left, but, uh, <laughs> so that's one, that's just one administrative fix, right. The next two, and I've kind of mentioned is the organizing fix. Like you say, we need to collectively strategize and leverage our resources. And then I think a component of that, but it's enough to be on its own, is we need an education department, which uh, people in the IWW have been talking about for a long time and they're working on. But, you know, we talk about contracts and we talk about having an organizing strategy that, that wins. And we talk about drawing from some of the successes that business unions have, but we still, like, we're committed to IWW principles of class struggle, of direct action, of, you know, a democratic organization that the members run. So that has to mean that any organizing we're going to do in the future is going to use the organizer training, not the way that the business unions use it to revitalize a, a bargaining unit just long enough to get a contract, but we're going to use it to get a well-organized, you know, group of workers at a workplace to run their own local, to run their own organization, to be participants perpetually. You know, and part of that means, you know, fighting for agreements procedure, if there even is one, that involves the organizing committees at a workplace from step one. So in other words, you know, as much as we might critique the OT 101, it's sort of, it's necessary, but not sufficient, right? If we're going to have an, an organized socialist union, we're going to need committees of workers there on a persistent basis, right? Who have constant contact. Um, yeah. Right. It's, it's so
1: yeah, so to do that, it sounds like the idea is like the contract would be a way to sort of provide a certain level of stability, such that you wouldn't basically constantly be dealing with like your committee members getting fired and having to get more committee members and the whole thing, you know, just kind of falls in the weight of one person who has to basically run this local in addition to, you know, their own job essentially for no money. Right. Yeah.
2: Because the problem you're confronted with is if, so you want to take the non-contractual route, you're confronted with a war of attrition, which we've talked about. They're just going to fire you. If you wanted to do it without them firing you, you'd have to get like literally everyone in that industry willing to strike. You'd have to organize a general strike almost out of thin air, right? Or do it underground, so to speak, which would be would take a ton of resources, would be near impossible, and still doesn't even guarantee you that the federal government's not just going to come in there and arrest all the leaders and shoot people until they stop. You know, um, but that's like the minimum that you you would probably have to do. Yeah, you know, what? just oh, secure your gains and get a concession of like. Uh, some sort of stability, right? So if you wanted to get job control like the Philadelphia Longshoremen did, you have to organize all of the Longshoremen, which was easier then because there was just less of them. But yeah.
1: Right. It seems like along the way, like you kind of, there's no way to like jump to that point because you have to at some point convince people that you can do something for them and that you're capable right. of being effective somehow as an organization. It, like it's, it doesn't seem like you can just leap from zero to 60 that way. Um, Absolutely um, so, and I think another thing that, you know, would be key to having, you know, like a robust organizing department, like trying things in like a strategic way would be, you can set metrics for success and failure and you can maybe, um, because right now we were talking, we started to touch on this a little bit earlier, just in some of the crosstalk about how we're at this point where, you know, the composition of capitalism in the United States is very different than it, from what it was in what we might call the, heroic age of labor in America right Mm -hmm. and so the way that we have to organize we're going to have to experiment and this sense like a lot of the people who you know are want to experiment with like you know they call community self-defense and stuff like that are actually right like we do need to try different things because Mm -hmm. the old model is no longer actually viable but we need to make sure that we're doing it in a way where we're say like setting metrics for achievement and failure where we're actually looking at to what extent we're actually making gains and not just kind of winding up in the space of activism, where when you're an activist, you're basically just tailing whatever happens to be hot at the moment. And that goes nowhere. Right. So there, we, there needs to be like a, a concrete uh, vision of like how we, where, where we want this union to grow to. And we need to figure out exactly how it is we were going to get there and yeah. to test you could almost say like a scientific way, methods of doing that.
2: Right. And, you know, there are ways to measure success that are are relatively straightforward, which is, you know, we got a contract, we got 200 new members and we won them, you know, a 20% wage increase. And then there are probably drawbacks. Like the contract has kind of a shitty grievance procedure. When we negotiate a new one, we should try to get in a position where we can get a better contract. Right.
1: Um, Well, that's what concerns me about, like, the current kind of culture. And, you know, some of this, I mean, a lot of this debating I've had has been online. And, you know, I don't know how much you can seriously you you can take Facebook conversations, which just seem to be like the form, the medium of Facebook seems to be structured for drama. But, you know, people do habitually get defensive of, you know, what they do. And if you you can never actually, like, evaluate success or failure of what happened, or if you can never say, like, this just didn't work, you're never going to be able to actually, like, adjust or shift right uh, the practices of the organization in a conscious way you'll do it in an unconscious way because whatever's hot right now will be the thing that people are advocating for exactly. but it won't be in a conscious way where you're actually like thinking about what are the underlying social mechanisms that are determining like our success and failure that are shaping mm-hmm. the composition of class and of industry and then how do we affect that as organizers so it seems to me like you know like there needs to be kind of like a change in mentality in ter- in terms of how we how we think about this
2: yeah, I think that was that's the reason I got involved with forming the IUC, the, the caucus, because it's kind of like, it comes to a spooky word, it's dialectical, right? Like we want, for the organization's culture and, and policy to change, like you have to change the structure of the organization and change what it does to a certain extent. And in order to do that, you have to convince majority of people that that's a good idea. So you get to the realm of ideas, again. you know what I mean? So like, and that's why we have the caucus, to argue for these ideas. Um, I think you're exactly right, yeah
1: um so well uh, do you want to okay so why why this like why now like why form this caucus at this point like because i know that you know i've known you for a while and i know this is a lot of stuff you've been thinking about for a long time and that there's others who've been i mean for instance one person in our caucus is fn brill he uh you know he's been he's been on this for like forever because he's been in the union forever and he's always been about like let's do industrial unions guys what are we doing yeah Um, but it seems like part of the reason that we launched this thing is that, like, right now, it seems like the organization is actually tending, like, in the exact opposite direction that we want to see it go. Should we talk about this on the show, or do you want to go into this, or?
2: Um, I'm I'm happy to do it. Let's talk about it, and then, because um, you have to edit this, and that'll take a little bit of time. We can just talk to other people and see if they think it's a strategic idea or not to, to keep it in. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to mark down the time right now. Uh, that we, that this, I've been keeping notes. So I'm going to write down when, when we started talking about this. It'll be easier to cut it if we don't want to have it in there.
2: Yeah, Okay. I mean, my general feeling is that I would much... Because no one in the union is talking about this stuff enough, I think. Uh-huh. And so there's like... I would love to get stuff out there that talks about this more directly.
3: Yeah, I think that the policy right now amongst a lot of people in the union is don't talk about union business outside the union. That's definitely something I've,
4: I've seen for sure from IWW.
3: And it's completely unqualified. Like, there's no reason for it.
2: Yeah, it's stupid. I mean, there's no... First of all, I don't think the IWW should be doing anything that people like, should worry too much about keeping secret, other than keeping out of the ears of a boss, right? Yeah, unless unless
1: you're talking about, like, an active campaign, yeah. Right. If you're talking about, like, broader, like, ideas about how the organization should be structured, it's like, what, it's like $11 to join this fucking organization. If, like, some fascist asshole wants to find out what we're doing, it's not that hard. And, you know, the NSA has everything tapped up the ass, so, like, there's there's no way they're not going to know everything we're doing. They're probably listening to this conversation right now.
3: Yeah, right. and that's, I really do believe that, like, any successful revolutionary organization will have to operate, like, under the assumption that, like, there are feds in the organization, and that, like, even so, yeah. they'll still have to be successful.
4: Yeah, I mean, Marx and
3: Engels were complaining about
1: spies literally in the preamble of the Communist Manifesto. Like, they, like police spies are mentioned, like, right at the very beginning, and that was in their little, like, small-scale thing that they, when they were trying to be communists in fucking 1840s, I mean.
2: right. So, right, so what did you want to, do you have a specific question again, sorry? Well, so I,
1: I, I guess what I have in my notes for the questions is, uh, should we talk about the drama? Um, but maybe we should talk about, okay, let's let's start with something that we're actually pretty sympathetic to. Let's talk about iWalk. Um, yeah. So, like, okay, so there was, like, this, so <laughs> there was, like, this thing, I don't know where, I don't even, honestly, this whole thing is such, like, a tangled web, I don't even know where to start. Um, maybe. Go ahead. I don't know, maybe you... So like there was this big controversy that I don't remember all the details about where basically someone on the executive board was acting like kind of a dick to IWOC and GDC people and then this caused a whole row and now some people want to kick out the entire board. Some people want to get rid of the board completely. Now there's, right. there's these other people bringing in this proposal where they basically want to balkanize the org into a bunch of different like regional federations based on the model of how it's organized in England and to a lesser extent Canada.
2: Yeah, yeah so there's a lot <laughs> Tied together here. Um, I guess the first thing we should talk about is the structure of the organization. So I said there's general membership branches in different cities. Okay. Then there's a general executive board, which is elected by, like, referendum, right? Everybody gets to vote on every seat on the board. The organizing department has a board that's elected the same way. But I think they're elected biannually, whereas the general executive board's elected every year. So, um... The general executive board is, is the highest authority in the organization outside of the membership. The structure of the organization is that the membership votes on referenda, the membership sends delegates to convention, the delegates vote about what gets to be put to referendum, and then the membership votes for the general executive board, and the general executive board oversees the organization between yearly conventions. Pretty normal structure. Some organizations don't have yearly conventions, they have them every other year or whatever um so on this general executive board uh there was a debate in early january about so yeah there's a couple things we can start with i walk i walk is the incarcerated workers organizing committee um taft hartley has maybe it's not Hartley. it might be the rico act it might be the one on racketeering basically you can't be an officer of a political political organization or sorry a union if you're um, a felon, I think that's the issue. So, a member of the general executive board was like, "Oh, has Iwalk looked into this? What is the legal strategy here? What if the United States government decides that you know people who are involved in you know working with incarcerated uh, workers for prison reform um, need to be you know interfered with? We should have a response if they throw you know the legal book at us." And I think, in addition to that, he asked people what, what they, if they were felons, I think, which was sort of like uh, not uh, appropriate to do. And I think a, a, the final thing that he was involved in trying to do, and maybe some others, again, I have to look at the details, but was perhaps trying to change the working rules of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, which. I don't think the GEB was empowered to do that, but the GEB definitely is empowered as per the constitution and the manual policies and procedures to oversee and audit all subcommittees, which includes walk the organizing department, uh, the GDC. So at the very least, you know they're supposed to solicit information. So a big chunk of what he was doing was solicit information. I don't know um, if they did change the working rules. They might've just been discussing it. Um, and that was one member on the board, right? A second thing that precipitated kind of the controversy in the IWW is that the GDC has – so this is a, a, another weird structural thing. The General Defense Committee of the IWW was chartered after those raids at the end of World War I, where the United States government basically scooped up a bunch of IWW members and had a bunch of trials of them. Um, the General Defense not, not to mention fights
4: with the uh, the American Legion – after right. World War as
2: well. Right. So the General Defence Committee was organized to raise legal funds. That was its principal activity was to to coordinate legal defence, right?
5: Against the Palmer raids.
2: It, yeah. So it became I I don't know how much it was really extant throughout like after like through the 20s and after. I think it might have done works like with like Anarchist Black Cross and stuff like that and kind of aid with uh, the Spanish civil War or maybe the wobblies just did that directly themselves I you know I just don't know the details um but it kind of got revived in the last eight to ten years as uh, something more the idea was that yeah so we can use this to help you know with legal defense and sort of anarchist black cross type stuff but we can also start to do basically anti-fascist organizing and they've since then, articulated uh, there's two pieces they've put out called one called unionism and anti-fascism and one called community self-defense model. Now, as I understand it, what they do is they have a picket training, which is a training on how to organize a picket, a hard picket or a soft picket. Now, a hard picket is where you don't want to let any workers through, right? So you're going to picket a workplace. So you're going to try to keep the scabs out. Um, and they just talk in general, about general, this was a couple years ago when I went to, so maybe it's more developed now, but how to have an effective picket or in a sense of protests. I think one of their main activities, as I understand it, is, uh, counter protests. So the GDC puts on these counter protests. If they're right wing, people are going to come to town, um, or fascists, uh, and they, um, help train other wobblies on how to do things like this. And I think they do other things like, you know, Personal security about your information and stuff to be safe. And I, if I, I didn't mean to sound like I was playing it down, some of this, like a pick a training <laughs> is a good thing, like uh, prepare, like keeping yourself safe is a good thing. Um, and knowing basic strategies and common sense thinking about it, or not common sense thinking about it, things maybe you don't think about, you know. Um,
1: Groups them. do that kind of stuff all the time. Um, that's it's a pretty common thing, especially like in really like kind of like hot activist moments. there yeah, yeah. people out there offering you know basic legal advice, or in some cases right. like masks with vinegar and stuff like that.
2: Right. Um, so the other thing that's strange about the General Defense Committee is that, and they said this was an inherited structure, but basically it is like it's like a semi auxiliary of the union. So. You don't have to be a member of the IWW to be in the General Defense Committee. You can be a boss and be in the General Defense Committee. You can't be a boss and be in the IWW. There's a rule that says, you know, you can't have the power to hire and fire. I don't think it's in the Constitution. It's maybe in the Manual of policies and Procedure. I think they might have just added it officially to the Constitution, but before that it was like a rule of thumb. But anyway, um, but to be in the GDC, it doesn't matter. And the dues are really low to be in the GDC. So when they sort of expanded it to this counter protest stuff, specifically in the twin cities, they also reached out and start, they they took an active role with the general defense committee in supporting, uh, protesters outside of one of the police stations, uh, after I think Jamar Clark was killed by cops. This is a, a young, I think a black teenager in the twin cities who was murdered by cops. Um, and as a result of that, as a result of them getting involved in that, And as a result of them taking a direct action, sort of, no, we're going to sit outside the police precinct and, like, protest, and uh, we're not going to do what the sort of Democratic-led BLM group was doing, which was kind of working with bourgeois and, like, community leaders and fake leaders and stuff like that to, like, ask politely for reform or whatever, where they kind of took a more militant stance. They did work. Uh, exposing connections between some of the cops and racist groups and stuff like that. So they, they did good work. And as a result, people were drawn to them, and they became interested in the GDC and what they were doing. People from the black community there, the working class communities there. Um, So they had, they saw like some growth. They saw, I think last numbers I saw were like a hundred, maybe over a hundred members in their GDC local. The dude, again, the low, I think the dues for the GDC are $12 a year or something like that, like super low. Right. Um, so it's easy. There's no reason not to join. Now, you can join and not join the IWW, or you can join and join the IWW. But uh, the, the, personally, my thinking is that that's great if you have a model that's recruiting people. That's great if you have a model that can win demands. I, not to diminish the fact that they recruited people at the Jamara Clark thing, I don't know. And I, it just might be a lack of remembering. It might be that I wasn't paying close enough attention. I don't know what the demand was one if there was a demand one. Certainly this is kind of a dilemma with any when cops murder people is that what demand can you win? You know what I mean like it's just
1: Yeah, I mean so, you can get the guy fired I guess he did it but Right.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's well, not it's not meant to be such a harsh judgment on them but it's just a, it comes back to a question of what is the exact role of the GDC?
3: What are we- I think the question is like, you know, there's nothing wrong with participating in those kind of actions as a union. Uh, unions, you know, often do support political things and political causes or candidates and stuff, but it's, is does it, there need to be an auxiliary body of the IWW that's dedicated simply to like everything, also- all activism that IWW members want to do. That's not workplace organizing. Basically.
1: Well, And also they have to be unions. Like, they have yeah, to have some exactly. actual weight. They have to have unions. That's, in the
2: that's what I was going to say, is that the the problem I have is that, you, so you recruited all these people, and then you do the typical thing that we talked about earlier, which is where, and I really can't stress enough, It's not, I'm not trying to get personal with this, but where, well, you know, we had all these people join from GDC activity, and, you know, now they're interested in organizing at their workplace. But it's like, we don't have a viable model. So if you're saying that the benefit of the GDC and doing things the GDC way and this model is that, well, we're going to recruit and then go and use it for industrial organizing, that that doesn't fly because we don't have a model for industrial organizing. So maybe you have found something of a model for recruitment a little bit. Let's get involved in the community and and in community problems and sort of, you know, uh, start to address them to some extent and talk about ways of addressing them. But we're lying. We're like being dishonest if we say – come join us. We organize industrially. We're not like those shitty business unions. We're about class struggle. Like we have the model, and which is what these people say, some of the hardcore partisans. And I, let me stress, this isn't the GDC totally. This is There's a camp amongst GDCers that really are putting forward a lot of this um, heavy critique of the IWW, heavy critique of doing industrial organizing and, and heavy critique of the GEB, which we haven't really, we kind of got off track from discussing, but that's what we're right. doing
1: that's what I was going to bring it back to. So on top of all this, there's, so the idea was like people in the GEB um, were basically suppressing like these aspects of the IWW. And um, on top of this, although a lot of people say it isn't related, there's this idea of basically like restructuring the IWW, like the way that it's organized more broadly um, yeah. and in a way that would basically like bolster regional autonomy um, right. at the expense of having like a yeah, you know, I guess you could say like centralized you know like national organization.
2: yeah. so so basically, there were three, so I think there were seven people on the board. Three people were um, very pro-GDC. And there was a vote. So the GDC pr- uh, participates in these protests, the j twenty protests, I believe. Um, and a member gets shot in Seattle. And so the GDC sends some flies someone out to deal with that. The GDC collects its own dues, has its own treasury. And again, as I understand it, I'll probably get a million corrections for this. The GEB, three of the members abstained. Uh, one member voted no to pay for that flight. And so there wasn't, and then there were three other members who were supportive of it. So I don't know how that shook out. I guess that would be that it didn't happen, right? So they didn't pay for that. That became, I think, the the major straw that showed them, or that demonstrated at least to a handful of the people on the board and people supportive of the pro-GDC people on the board, that there was, quote-unquote, an anti-GDC uh, click or faction on the board. Uh, people were upset that they were, like, picking on IWOC um, and that they were not, you know, 100% behind the GDC, right? Right. Um, and so they put out this paper I think in March the three members who were quote unquote pro GDC that, that alleged that the GEB doesn't represent the membership doesn't represent the interests of the membership and is basically completely dysfunctional because they won't they wouldn't vote to do this and they were like auditing and investigating iwalk and stuff like that and that the GDC and IWOC are the sort of pioneers of the IWW. They're bringing the organization back to life. They're the only thing that's working in the union and that's successful. Um, and uh, if the IWW doesn't take up the mantle of anti-fascism right now and pursue these organizing a- like ends with all of their might, the union's going to perish and be doomed to irrelevance. Um, so in the spirit of that, they argue that there needs to be a fundamental restructuring of the IWW. They need to get rid of the general executive board, and they need to restructure into regional sectional councils, which will be made up of delegates from particular regions, like the southeast, the northeast, the, you know, Midwest, whatever. And um, all of those delegates will sit on this regional council, and they'll elect a chair. And then each chair from each council, each region, will sit on, like, a new version, a, a regional... Uh, Executive Council, which would replace like the General Executive Board, but every single thing the Regional Executive Council decides will go back to referendum anyway. So it would really just be a general—I call it a general rubber-stamping board. It has no—it would have no power. It would have no teeth. If if it's stuck to this line that everything goes back to referenda, then it doesn't—it's going to have no teeth. I don't think it would actually stick to that line because I think what would happen. Is that because everything in the union is volunteer based and because they're making it based on delegates from branches on the regional councils, you're going to get this layer of bureaucracy and you're going to get branches that are bigger having the time to send one person to to let one person spend all of their activity in the IWW in that bureaucratic zone? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it
3: honestly, (laughs) the way they want to restructure it does not sound more democratic to me. It sounds, it sounds like is like you said it would give more power to the already existing large locals but it would also create like a whole layer of bureaucracy between the membership and the leadership because instead of actually like having the membership at large elect the um central committee or whatever the, G- the gec um it would be the membership at large it should be the membership at large that elects that but um way they would have it in this situation is it would only be delegates who are already elected in the regional councils who will get a say on that
1: right and so it sounds like this would yeah this would make it much more difficult to set it sounds like it would make it much more difficult to set like union-wide policy let alone like union-wide strategy in a way that um, was like dynamic and maybe capable. You know, like it, it sounds like it's just basically creating like autonomy for like different sections that can then kind of do whatever they want. And yeah. so long as so long as it they don't get fucked on a referendum, essentially.
4: I mean, if you do this, you're 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 going to get all of the same problems you have now, but uh, fiefdoms versions of it. You know, right? It, it does it. It doesn't solve the the problem, the bureaucracy problem at all. Yeah, right.
3: uh, there's there's historical evidence, I think, but. Decentralization doesn't really solve the bureaucracy problem. Cuz in Maoist China, like they tried to kind of decentralize everything and it kind of just led to more famine <laughs> and it really didn't work. So it was just this kind of idea that oh, well if we just like make these regional if we decentralize, we have regional councils that have like, more authority and you know we have an executive board that's controlled by these regional councils. It will be like more of a, a true federalist anarchist system that's decentralized, but really, it's not going to be better. You basically, know, it's kind of fetishizing the principle of decentralization.
2: It is, and they they want to they want to replace because part of the restructuring proposal also says that the organizing department will be elected uh, on a con- like per region too. So they basically want to get away from a general election and they want to do constituent right, for like, regionally constituent elections of these different...
3: Oh, so there would be, like, an organizing board for every region, basically?
2: Well, I th- no, I think it would just be that each region would have one member on the organizing board. Okay. If I recall correctly. But so they allege that there are certain problems, but this doesn't really address those problems. I mean, the some of the problems they identify are the same that we, that there's not a clear... Uh, organizing policy within the union that's collectively set. There's no sort of vision, um, but it doesn't make sense that to address that you would decentralize a great degree of the decision-making process, right. To these different. Yeah. I mean, or if, so if there's, fun there's
4: fun. not enough of a vision and, and stuff, the, the solution to that is not to make yourself a less cohesive organization.
5: Yeah. I find the, anti-fascism angle in particular to
4: hmm,
5: smack. I mean, imagining that as a spearhead. Well, you know, that's, it's, uh, clearly It's, very heated. <laughs> it's that's, that's clearly, I, you know, I'm not involved in this and I'm actually sympathetic to decentralization in, in general, but you know, when you're dealing with a large national organization, um, it's, you know, it's a big question when I was in. I was involved with Red Party. I felt like there was a bureaucratic clique in the middle that I wanted to decentralize and get around. I don't know if there's something like that in the IWW. I'm sympathetic to thoughts like that. It might not work for this. I really don't know the ins and outs of that. But what I will say is that pivoting to anti-fascism, uh, the way things are right now, is you know kind of an angle towards bourgeois coalitionism. I know that that's not necessarily where anti-fascism goes, but I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the IWW. I don't have to pull punches. Um,
2: we know I, that. I think you're right. I think, um, so the way they pitch it is they call it a community self-defense model. And part of my criticism is that historically you don't have a working class community institutionally without an organized labor movement for better or for worse i I,
5: I, I can't think of there's really not like alternatives that that i can i can think of that have popped up that have made working class politics possible like institutionally possible
3: well the argument i guess would be that there's like ethnic enclaves and ethnic communities that need to be defended from fascist violence but the problem is that when you kind of base your strategy on that, you can become subsumed to kind of like the petty bourgeois, like managerial strata that, um you know, right. controls these communities. Well, you know, yeah, it's not that um, these communities shouldn't be defended
5: from fascist violence. Um, I suppose I wonder if,
4: it, I mean, does Antifa showing up at courthouses and getting into battles right. with shields and stuff actually do that kind of defense work i don't
2: so one one point yeah. that uh, a wobbly made is that there's right wing violence it's, it's somewhat on the uptick still more workers die in the united states every year from uh accidents at work and from a lack of health care right so just on that pure, oh, yeah
5: thing,
2: on that pure thing alone right that's something that we could prioritize but the point i tend to make is that what's going to stop fascism a handful of sort of day class, a left activists who want to have industrial unions, but don't have a model that works, uh, standing between fascists and these working class communities or those communities themselves, like organized, like politically conscious and then taking up arms as is their constitutional right to, to do so, to protect themselves if they need be. Like you can go through the step of organizing a union, which starts to educate workers about class, about class struggle, about it gives you you can present sort of a political landscape to them and this process that starts to make sense right that starts to cohere but outside of organizing them on that basis as a class as workers in the workplace you run the risk as lexi said and as donald said of being subsumed to petty bourgeois politics
4: i mean at least at least vanguardism it, it pretends to invoke the masses whereas anarchism for all its it, uh, or at least this form of anarchist antifa you know seems to to be like these little cell units are going to stop fascism
3: well right. i well, think that's the worry is that it's going to basically become like a mini antifa within the union but not really within the union
1: well and i think you know the big the big takeaway here is kind of like you said earlier donald like you know if like if unions can take part in political struggle but they need to be unions first they need to have without like without an
4: activated yeah without it, an activated social base nothing happens well yeah. and without, without like a party strong
1: we need to basically yeah. forge a weapon for the working class which, which with which they can actually wage the class war like yes i'm a big i'm a big believer in taking a 20 minute shit at work as a way to like fight back and protect your labor power. But that's not, that's not class. That's not like functional class war. Like you need an institution that can actually fight politically in a way. And I don't mean politically like electoral. I mean like politically as in like dealing with like the, the sub like the substance of like our social relations and to fight it in a way that actually has, has effect like the the punches have weight behind them. It's not just, yeah, go on.
2: Well, you can respond to the state. I mean, there was a point where the IWW uh, and and where unions in general would escalate the battle to the point where the federal government would have to get involved with like troops. You know what I mean? Like that's politics. You're not, you know, voting for politicians per se, but right, you're, you're coming up against the capitalist state. And if you're not able to do that, if the capitalist state decides it wants to let fascists sort of like run rampant, you know the same stuff that goes into coordinating a strike on that scale is going to go into coordinating self-defense from fascists. You know what I mean? Like those are the same practical skills you're going to need to learn. And so it makes like there's a reason. And the, the really the truly bizarre thing is having to argue this in the IWW at some points, right? To argue why we focus on the working class as a class. Yeah, Number but one, I think across is- categories. But number two, like it's that is the the dynamic, right? Go ahead, you were gonna say something, Donald. I
3: was gonna say that it's kind of the culture of antifa within anarchism. That's a dominant ideology within the IWW. The two kind of developed together. Modern anarchism and antifa are very much tied. The black bloc is tied to antifa, and so it's like the modern anar- anarchists, a lot of them very much see antifa as a very important thing, and so if it makes if they don't really see how building a movement based off of protesting against right-wingers is not really a viable way to build industrial unions because they just kind of see it from, this is a just thing to do and is to fight the fascists. We should, you know, fight against, you know, go to Trump rallies and like try to keep the alt-right from talking to people. You know, we need to do things like that. We need to fight, protest against Milo, for example, and I'm not saying you know, these things are morally bad and that people shouldn't do them, but it's it's not going to be a strategy for building a movement of industrial you know, workers and the proletariat writ large because... Or,
4: or one that can fight fascism.
3: Yeah, it's not going to be able to actually fight fascism. What it does is it tries to prevent the articulation of fascist ideology. It tries to fight fascist ideology from being projected into society. But let's just face it. Like, it's going to do that anyway.
1: Yeah, if you're gonna do that, if you were serious about that, what you'd want to do is like find a way to shut down 4chan servers.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean the way we defeat fascism, I like, think like fascism is you know a form of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, and the way that you defeat the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is for proletarian revolution. Like it's right that well, simple.
2: I, I think the GDC stuff, their particular approach, um, for better or for worse. And like I said, so and we should also clarify it, right? This isn't you know the GDC has a lot of members, and I think some of them are more sympathetic to our views than others. It's I think a good that, tent.
3: I think there's uh, a small. There's a group need for a defense that, committee. You know, like there is a need for that kind of body in the union.
2: Right. Yeah, and I think there's a small, but extremely vocal group who are also connected to a, a certain, like anarchist political organization called May First Anarchist Alliance that are very vocally against the GEB that are very, very like pro the current structure of the GDC, very pro the restructure proposal to get rid of the GEB, that, and that also, if you look into it, have that kind of, as you described, sort of antifa anarchist uh, ideology to a large extent. Now, uh, I think that their strategy in the GDC kind of mirrors, and you touched on this, you said something about the it's a moral fight to fight fascists. It mirrors sort of the IWW's organizing approach up to now, right? Like you have this lofty aim that you can't really succeed at. You don't have, you shift the goalposts a lot. And so you kind of turn it into a moral fight. Every fight becomes a moral fight that, well, we stuck it to the boss. Well, we stuck it to the fascists. And there's not really like a cohesive, like growth strategy or more general long-term strategy
3: as a result Uh, there kind of is a growth strategy because you know they realize there's a trump bump you know and so kind of you know having an anti-fascist dedicated body is a way for them to kind of grow really quickly in this political climate but the thing is are they are they using this as a way to I, I doubt that there really are this is going to pay off in the long run and as far as building industrial unions go, because the core question of how to build industrial unions has not been solved. So they can recruit as many people as they want through the Gc and you know have them do the organizer training and tell them to go out and organize, but it still won't change the fundamental flaws of the IWW because there's a deeper structural and strategic flaw.
2: Right. And so that's, yeah, I mean, it it, it it does come back to that, but I was just, you know, I think it does the current GDC strategy, um, strategy mirrors the IWW one. Um, and it's kind of like Jake said earlier that, so you have the Trump bump and that's good. But, uh, even if we had an industrial organizing strategy, if it's true that the Trump bump is what caused their growth, then that would go away in time. You know what I mean? It would still only be taking advantage of um, things that happen to them and not really taking yeah. into account, right? Or everything they could. The same thing is t- happening
5: in every leftist organization. Is was the right. Trump bump? I mean, the, it's sort of nakedly. I don't want to say opportunistic because on the one hand there are real, you know, there is a real moral sense that you want to keep fascism down. But you know, on the other hand, I mean, there's a long critique of anti-fascism and and that I, you know, I'm kind of surprised. That a lot of people that have been like readboard Bordiga lol for like five years on the internet are all of a sudden like you know uh, not very critical of the anti fascist impulse, um, but more importantly I guess is that it sounds like the you know quasi anti fa element in the IWW is trying to grapple on the one hand with the real problem of the kind of moralistic uh, unionism not working out and. You know, replacing the good fight with a different good fight, um, and yeah. I, I don't, I don't. I, I mean, you know, I th- I think things have changed dramatically in the relationship to production, so that we really need to reconsider. You know, what it means to do unionism. Um, I'm super skeptical of being able to, you know, uh, break out the the electroshock and and bring the old business unions back to some radical place. Um, mm-hmm. The I, the IWW trying to build up something new radical and you know presumably new even though it's a hundred year old organization um, it seems like that would be how it would have to go and there do need to be innovative strategies and you need to interface with contemporary politics in some way interface with the way things are but this just seems opportunistic
2: yeah i mean so yeah i have to say there's certainly, I mean, like you said, they are trying to grapple with. And it's clear, right? They, they on the one hand, they want to say the IWW has the model, but then on the other hand, they say that they we know we've been stagnating for the past five or six years or whatever. So, and then they say that the GDC is the answer. So it's it's a little they're a little contradictory at times. It's a concession to reality, right? Nevertheless, yeah, they're trying to figure out a, a way forward. It's just it's not clear that this is, I, I don't, I think, it, well, I think it's quite clear that it isn't the way forward, you know? So what, um,
1: what is, what is the way forward then? Like, what, what do we want to see happen um, with the IWW? And like, what, what's, in, what's in the future? Like, where, where should this head and where might it head?
2: I, I would like to see uh, steering committees start getting together, industrial union steering committees, which the first thing is let's get people in the IWW talking to each other who are in the same industry, but also like talking together, overlapping that about wobbly like IWW principles um, engage in and organizing a union what it would mean to go after a contract the caucus just published a piece by one uh worker who fellow worker who couldn't make it onto this call but talking about what how would a, an IWW union approach a contract in a principled way um and then other strategies that we could use to organize I think those are the crucial next steps um if the union does vote for the restructuring proposal. On the one hand, it's kind of a Brexit-like situation because they say it wouldn't take effect until, like, three years from now or something. Um, so they can either kick the can down the road. I guess you could, like, modify it. You uh, Maybe there could be another vote to reject it. I would, you know, there's... A, I certainly try to have my own limits about how much I'm going to invest in this organization. You know what I mean? Like, just in terms of... If it goes in that direction, and that's definitely the trend it starts to take, I don't see how it would be amenable how they could make that work with trying to have, like, you know, a national industrial union of workers who work as, like, in hospitals, right, for example, or work wherever, um, who need to be working together to think about strategies for organizing there and, and, and winning and concentrating resources to do so. Um, I mean, isn't it called One Big Union, right? Right, exactly. And, and so this would really be kind of like, I guess, the long, if they're successful, the long triumph of sort of like uh, the purest anarchist element in a sense.
4: Well, if you leave, our history lesson from before teaches that you will be within a long and storied tradition. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's hope that instead it, it goes uh, in the direction of industrial unionism.
2: Yeah. But uh, it's, I mean, like you were saying, Donald, and like Lexi said earlier, like you have to change, you have to take into account what's different. I mean, now we have highly centralized businesses in terms of finances, right, with huge resources that have decentralized sites of, of accumulation, right? You have franchise, like the franchise model is huge. And not only that, they have degrees of vertical integration like Publix controls its warehousing and some of its dairy producing you know like walmart doesn't directly control but informally does control the pricing as a result of the fact that it's a monos- what is i don't know the term it, it's the biggest buyer right monopsony or whatever um but yeah so it has market power it has market power right um so like that situation has to be contended with there is a good essay jake and i have we discussed and we shared it in the IUC, but it's by um, one of the head organizers for the International Longshoremen Longshore Workers and Warehouse Workers Union. Um, he's read his
1: capital, and if he hasn't, like he basically just kind of figured it out on his own,
2: right? Where he, you know, he's just talking about yeah. So you want to organize Walmart workers? Why don't you start? at a smaller regional grocery store. And why don't you start at their warehouses and and everything there? And then you have to do an analysis of like, what are their wages like? Are you gonna get, you know, like, he's just breaking down basically like how you organize and how you leverage wins. Yeah,
1: and- hit him, Basically what he argues is hit him in the distribution centers because that's actually a choke point that, that has implications down the line. Whereas if you just try to organize like individual stores, they can just close the store because all a store is, it's a building with a bunch of shit in it and you can just move the shit. Right. So like, you know, he yeah. just, like it, it's, it's pr- it's actually pretty lines up pretty well with like um, Marx's analysis of like circulating capital and like, yeah. And like the costs that exist there. Um, but yeah, so like it's it's thinking about what I what I love about that piece so much is that like he's thinking about like the way that the economy works, like it more as a totality and trying to see where the weak points are, exactly. where you could actually, you know, hit them there and then have broader implications that will make it easier for you to organize in other places.
3: That's right. kind of the, actually the kind of the, the Leninist strategy applied to the world, though it's you know, the rush is the weak link, and that will make it easier to organize revolutions in Europe and elsewhere in the right. third world. And so, yeah, that's interesting. Well, but it, it, I think the IWW could just learn more from other unions because there yeah. is kind of this sectarian attitude that, all oh, the business unions are evil. The way everything they do is bad and opportunistic, right. and we can't work with them, and we can't learn from them. But well, really they- – as far as unionization is go they are having more success than the IWW at actually unionizing workers right now One so, thing that really fr- that really like freaked me out like I this- learned from them if not it was still keeping to the you know the, the principles of direct action and independence from the state and whatnot you know' We know that thing- we can have to learn from the business unions because they'll start using more radical tactics if they have to you know.
1: Yeah, if we're, all, if we're only defined by that, like, that, yeah, they'll, ju- they'll just steal it, kind of like we're talking about like, the CIO did before. But what I was going to say, like, one thing that really freaked me out, like, at this OT 101 that I went to is that there's somebody who I know who is organizing um, at her workplace for another union. And she was brought to this by a fr- mutual friend of ours who was sort of bringing people that she knew. She, like, she's an asked Me organizer. She brought people to the OT 101 to pick up extra skills and, you know, just kind of have, I guess, you know, friendly relations with the IWW and stuff like that and but she she's organized her workplace already and she's like okay i understand like what i could do for the iww but i don't understand what the iww could do for me and the organizers the people doing the training were just like oh we'll get that later of course they never did and i think that's you know endemic of like a deeper problem in the organization um
2: yeah i think you're exactly right there's some people call business unionism model in the IWW they call it the service unionism model and that the term actually derives from what i was describing earlier where the union only comes around when contract negotiations are up and they come and service the contract right they provide the staff that negotiate the contract and everything like that so it's a service union but it also has come to mean like the union doesn't do anything but provide a slate of services that second meaning is not like, that's fine. That's what an organization is supposed to do in a certain sense. It's supposed to provide educational services, it's supposed to provide communication services, like to pay for things like a building where people can come together and meet. Like we should aspire to be a service union in that sense, you know, like to provide, to help workers organize, you know, that should be a source of pride for us. Um, So it is a really bizarre thing when the DIY ethic kind of stuff gets pushed to its limit
3: yeah the way i look at it is it kind of says instead of organizing unions that represent workers we kind of want to create networks of workers who do direct actions and kind of just build this network until it comes to kind of this uh mass strike level point. and so if we just organize enough shop committees and keep at it and no matter how much people get fired eventually it would all like it will build up you know kind of
2: right
5: Haven't you read Settlers? Don't you know? (laughs) No, I mean, I I don't know. Uh, From what I understand, the IWW is uh, one of the targets of Settlers. And for, you know, whatever its flaws, we got to come clean about the post-war compromise and the, you know, legacy of of not-so-great stuff that went on in the labor movement, mostly because of the failure of the communists, but also, you know, because of racism within orgs um, is, is... You know, um, is there anything to that critique in regards to the IWW? You think historically? I
2: I think so. So one of the things that kind of irks me about, again, I think the M1 faction in the GDC in is a kind of conception of um, just it's the leftist common sense about racial Balkanization and um, sort of like weird left race essentialism, if that makes sense. Um, that there are these homogenous ethnic communities that need to be completely autonomous and then like make up their own mind as a ho- homogenous autonomous community, whether or not they affiliate with other homogenous autonomous, you know, ethnic communities. Um, it's never expressed quite this way, but that's sort of like the logic that's at play. Right. And so if you, so people will raise concerns like strategic or tactical concerns about, well, is the GDC model of self-defense like, How effective is it? Is there ways to make it more effective? Blah, blah, blah. And sometimes the response is straight up like, wow, are you really criticizing the authentic autonomous struggle of black workers and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, if we can't even have a conversation about strategy, what's the point of having an organization, right? It's not like you don't know, especially behind like an avatar online, right? It's some of the, some of it's just the basic leftist fumblings, right? Where it's like, you don't know my ethnicity. You don't, you don't even know me really. And you're just going to like, throw out this huge claim like that um so it's kind of like that overreach or whatever uh so in that way um one of the the points we have in the iuc is that we're basically uh integrationists right we need to get workers the workplace workplaces are integrated not always as well as they should be and if they're not it's the task of a union to fight for their integration right more thoroughly to fight against discrimination or because more or less they usually are right um we need to unite workers at their workplaces as workers as best as possible to fight against the boss effectively right that's the only way you're gonna win um And I think that feeds into a general, like it can be supported by a more general program, especially if there's a socialist party, but also I think with the IWW um, on certain points, like regarding the community, uh, defending the basic democratic rights of uh, oppressed groups, groups that do see de facto discrimination and stuff like that from the state. Um, I don't know, that's kind of-
1: Well, what is that? I think Lexi was also asking about like kind of the post-war settlement generally, well, like... I had a
3: thought about the whole settlers' question and the post-war settlement.
1: Yeah, so, go yeah, go for it.
3: Well, like, um, I think one of the, a lot of the settlers' critique of the IWW is very unfair. I think because the IWW was one of the first, like, very dedicated integrated unions organizations that was dedicated to overcoming racial and ethnic like divisions in unionism. I think that you know they might have still had a kind of it might have still led to white workerism in practice in some cases, but I think the overall vision and principles of the union if applied properly are, you know, pretty progressive, especially for back then, you know. I, and so Sakai, his argument is that, uh, one of them is that the IWW didn't support the Mexican Revolution. But the oh, thing is, like, what? the Mexican Revolution was a bourgeois revolution and you saw anarchists get crushed and syndicalist movements getting crushed and you know, if so, why would they support? It <laughs> doesn't, you know. What
2: was it? Ricardo flores Magón was a member of the IWW. Yeah,
3: and I was about to say, IWW oh. members worked with Ricardo flores Magón, who Joe was a Mexican anarchist was- who helped start, you know, the Mexican Revolution.
2: I have this book about Joe Hill, and there's a postcard from him to his brother, and he drew a picture of himself, and he's getting shot through his hat. And he's like, I'm down here in Baja, California, or something like that series yeah. are like, um, you know, doing some really great work or something. You know, like he was supportive of
3: it. Um, I yeah, think we tried be- to take over Baja California, okay. basically, but like a lot of the Mexican nationalists thought that there were too many like IWW members who weren't nationalists working with them, who weren't right. Mexican working with them. It was an interesting kind of um, right. class history. But
2: it's been a long time since I read Settlers, and I'd—I I'd, mean, I would be willing to discuss those criticisms. I just can't remember them in detail. Yeah, there's a lot but, of. What, uh, would you would
5: you would you read Settlers with us?
2: Um, I could. I would read at
3: least. I've already read Settlers, and I really like don't want to read it again. <laughs> uh, you know,
5: <laughs> there's like the, the sea change in the relations of production that liquidated the post-war compromise, arguably, and even I think Sakai agrees with this to a degree. Arguably, you know, not flatten the playing field, but made, you know, uh, workers made white workers, you know, more powerless than they had been um, and put, putting them on more yeah, equal siblings of color.
3: Uh, you had this kind of you know, white identity producerism that's been a strain in American history. You know, you had the Jacksonians who very much were um, white workers producer. You know, they saw the middle class shopkeeper and the worker on the same side, kind of because if you worked with your hands, you were, you know, a worker, even if you were petty bourgeois, basically, it was a lot of the ideology. And so it was kind of like a cross class um, coalition based on whiteness to try to integrate the white working class into the bourgeois state. And yeah, I think and- this, this constantly plays up in American history. And yeah. I think that, you know, Sakai is kind of describing this this um, this phenomena. There is a tendency in the American labor movement towards white workerism and producerism that's kind of well not kind of racist but extremely racist and uses racism as a you know, it uses um blacks and immigrants as a scapegoat for the problems of capitalism, much like National Socialism used the Jews as a mm-hmm. scapegoat the problems of capitalism
2: right and but it so, is
3: a real current in american culture it has to be dealt with but it has to be dealt with on a political level which means organizing mass parties that fight against racist laws mm-hmm. that fight against you know corrupt police officers and whatnot that can wage real political struggles and whatnot not not, not through eth- ethnic
1: nationalisms of the oppressed
3: no. yeah I, I think we need to you know basically articulate marxist responses to um issues rather than kind of just no towing to whatever nationalist group is you know happens to claim to represent x ethnicity
2: well and to like to their credit the iww fought pretty well against that like devs is an example he refused to speak to audiences that weren't integrated um the iww organized white workers and black workers together on the philadelphia docks um and they did it in the south as well timber workers so that's, you know, the ones on the one score of the IWW's history, but then, yeah, there's like the broader issue of race being used as a means to uh, organize the white working class in a sense against its own interests, or at least in it only in its short term interests, right? Um, yeah. it's really the our- argument is like
3: they get a psychological benefit and maybe a short term kind of raise by you know siding with you know, they're white bosses against black workers, but in the end, they're betraying their actual and like logical class interests. Right. And it, the it's idea it, is that your know, class interests aren't just like what workers subjectively think at a given moment, no. but derived of, of kind of logically and objectively from a view of the entire capitalist system, you know?
2: Right, right. And then that's the challenge of any union organizing drive, even the narrow ones is uniting workers because that's going to be a card that bosses are going to play in that in the process
3: yeah and so i you know i can imagine how a lot of liberal identity politics could play a role in dividing workers just you know just as racism plays a role in dividing workers you know you could start not to be you know not to the same extent that racism will probably divide workers but i can almost see how a lot of this lean in like neoliberal left fucodian type stuff could be used as ways to kind of
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Hillary yeah. definitely used it. She tried to use yeah. it, um, race and gender as a way to undermine uh, the kind of growing economic demands. Um, yeah, she, so you
3: can, can see, like, these arguments that, like, industrial unionism is too white, that if we don't build larger industrial union uh, unions, we won't actually get non-whites in the union, when really, if you wanted more non-whites in the organization, which is, you know, what we want, we want a more diverse and representative organization— but you get that by organizing the working class because it is in the working class where workers of different races and ethnicities and genders have to come in contact to each other.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. I think it's kind of just a, common, like a leftist common sense sort of lashing out type thing. It's like yeah. a an explanatory fiction or whatever, or a straw man, you know? Well, they the just...
3: thing is, like the early American left was basically too... Economistic on race and wasn't really a willing to fight against racism as such, and fight mm-hmm. for democratic rights for blacks as like the Communist Party became. Right. Like, eventually, the Communist right, Party yeah. become that kind of organization, but that was right. under the pressure of the turn
2: <laughs> Right. I was a true. I was talking more about like the contemporary, like in the IWW right now, the tendency to to call critics or people who just raise concerns about strategy with respect to the General Defense Committee, the tendency to call them racist without any sort of basis in fact i think it's well i
3: mean i think whenever you make a critique of anti-fascist you know anti-fascism you know you would do risk but you know that's that's people leftists have a very you know moralistic attachment to anti-fascism and so Mm -hmm. when you critique aspects of that it really does bring out a lot of emotional responses and you know it's fascism very extreme and scary so it's kind of Right, it's very hard to get people to sit down and kind of talk about it calmly and rationally.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, the issues of race and gender are real, they're material, and they have to be confronted.
0: That's it for this week. Next week, we will be sitting down with C. Derek Varn for the third volume of our series, The Joy of Sects. For that episode... We'll be discussing platypus. If you'd like to ask us a question, or just get a hold of us in general, you can email us at swampsidechance@gmail.com, at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, you can like us on Facebook or leave us a good review on iTunes. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.